This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to an encore replay series of Heritage Matters. We are replaying the best of series that we played over the Christmas New Year period this year. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. Like most of you, we're on holiday at the moment. So for your listening pleasure, we've selected a series of stories we ran earlier in the year. In this program, Bill Southworth explores how New Zealand developed into an egalitarian society. Gregor Campbell looks at the history of a fallen woman. We hear of a blasting tragedy and we get a new insight into pioneer whaler Johnny Jones. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, New Zealand developed into an egalitarian society. The rigid class system that settlers were used to in Britain didn't take root in the colony. Bill Southworth has been looking at the Caversham Project, conducted by researchers from Otago University's History Department, which discovered the reasons why this significant social change occurred. We're used to reading about how tourists find Kiwis to be very friendly and easygoing. We also do praise from around the world for the way we automatically gathered in large numbers to embrace and comfort our Muslim folk after the atrocity in Christchurch. These egalitarian attitudes, which emphasise equality, have risen partly because social classes and religions seem to mix very easily in New Zealand, a thing you still don't see in Great Britain. Excessive deference towards the upper classes disappeared very quickly in the new colony. Something different happened here something that we took for granted and didn't think a great deal about. In the street I grew up in, printers and watersiders lived alongside the managers of NAC, business executives and senior civil servants. Their children played together and went to the same schools, often forming lifelong friendships. In the state grammar school I went to, the sons of labourers studied alongside the sons of doctors and lawyers, and most went off to university together. Over the decades, many stayed in touch with one another. It used to be a phenomenon that was valued, even to the extent that state houses, now more commonly called social housing, were deliberately scattered throughout expensive suburbs in a process called pepper-potting. Although such patterns have changed somewhat in recent years, with expensive suburbs and gated communities becoming more common, for much of our history, the random mixing of social classes in the same streets was a stable pattern for many decades. Historian Professor Eric Olson and other researchers from the Otago University have studied the roots of this egalitarianism. Their study focused on Caversham, Kensington, South Dunedin and St Kilda in what was known as the Caversham Project. They wanted to see if they could unlock the key as to why there had been such strong social interaction in New Zealand across what would have been strong class barriers in Great Britain. So what is it that the academics studied in the historic borough of Caversham in the first two decades of the 20th century? Well, they made over a quarter of a million observations of about 70,000 people. They began looking up electoral rolls, which were fairly comprehensive databases of the entire adult male population, because they listed name, occupation and residential address. Thus we could see who lived in each house in a given street. They found random and obviously unplanned patterns of house building. Labourers lived alongside factory owners and tradesmen alongside professional people. 
Class certainly existed, but it no longer meant what it meant in the old country, where the wealthy lived in suburbs where workers would never live unless they were in service. St Clair, long regarded as an affluent suburb dominated by grand houses with tennis courts and stables, boasted a surprising proportion of manual workers. Kensington, at the other end of the socio-economic spectrum, dominated by small cottages and the grime from railway yards and the city gasworks, was also home to some of Dunedin's wealthiest citizens, people like Shacklock, the ironmaster, and Lambert, the pipe maker. This is not to say that non-manual families did not cluster in St Clair or that families of non-skilled didn't cluster in Kensington. But in comparative terms, there was not a tendency to cluster by class. Children went to the same schools where the sexes mixed and mingled. The same happened at Sunday schools and city dances. Love easily broke down what elsewhere would have been class barriers. Marriage registers contained the occupations of the fathers of the bride and the groom, and the occupation of the groom himself. Intergenerational mobility could thus be measured. They showed intermarriage across both social classes and religions was common. This would have been considered most unusual in Britain. There was much greater social mobility, both through marriage and the fact that many tradesmen soon formed their own businesses, a thing that had been much harder to do in the old country. In Britain, there was also snobbery towards people who worked with their hands, something that didn't have the same force in our frontier society. As Professor Olson noted, Two further factors contributed to the creation of an egalitarian society by eroding most of the difference that separated the skilled and the unskilled in Britain. First, the difference in pay for skilled and unskilled work, a gigantic gulf in Britain, largely disappeared in the colony, and almost everyone came to respect physical strength and skill. That may go some way towards explaining why the first all-black teams, which were largely drawn from men who worked with their hands, easily put British teams to the sword. Teams which were largely drawn from private schools and the gentlemanly classes, people who didn't work with their hands. Both in the 19th and early 20th centuries, it was common to find critical references in newspapers in Dunedin to social and housing conditions in the industrial towns the immigrants had come from conditions that they definitely didn't want to see arising in this country. As Professor Olson has noted, Disraeli and Dickens explored the nightmarish consequences of industrialization and urbanization for the new legions of industrial workers. In England, as Frederick Engels first showed in his study of the working class in Manchester, by 1844 residential segregation confined thousands to squalid lives in cellars, forced to live and even drown in their own waste. The local canals and rivers polluted beyond belief. As urbanization gathered momentum, two nations formed, strangers to each other. The New Zealanders were, of course, not strangers to each other. Living together in the same streets and suburbs not only ensured that the not-so-well-off were not segregated into working-class ghettos, but also that streets and houses were of a reasonable condition compared with industrial Britain. Professor Pat Grimshaw of Melbourne University, reviewing the study, has said, They not only rescued the citizens of this southern outpost of the British Empire from the condescension of posterity, but have put Dunedin on the map of internationally significant sites of scholarship for modern social and labour history. 
There is no doubt that the egalitarian legacy bequeathed New Zealanders has undergone some basic changes. Today, when Housing New Zealand, now known as Kianga Ora, tries to develop social housing in affluent areas, it gets a backlash. It literally receives letters saying, we don't want these people here. Or it comes in coded form. This week, a local authority in central Otago has said in relation to proposed social housing, quote, we need to ensure that local identity is acknowledged and community cohesion is maintained. Well, New Zealand did have social cohesion once, and it seems that the Cavisham project may have cracked the reasons why. This is Bill Southworth reporting. Not all Dunedin's citizens in the 19th century were the staid and upright Free Church of Scotland types. Gregor Campbell has been looking at the brief career of one woman who would not have graced a church's door, but was certainly familiar with court ones. Elizabeth Powell is one of those figures who appear in the historic record and then disappear. She lived in that portion of Dunedin encompassing Walker, now Stafford Street, which was known in the late 19th century as the Devil's Half Acre. It was a slum area, a place renowned for disorder, a place for outsiders to enter with care. Elizabeth first appears in the Dunedin Court News in 1866 on fairly common charges and was fined 20 shillings for using obscene language. But a few years later, things become more serious. In 1874, she was charged with abducting a young servant girl for the purposes of prostitution. On being asked why she left her position, the child burst into tears and answered because Lizzie Powell asked her to leave her father and mother. She did not tell her for what purpose, but got her to go with her on Sunday night and remain until the Tuesday following. Whilst there, several men, some of them drunk, called at the house, and one of them abused her in the backyard and wanted her to go with him, but she refused to leave Powell. On the Tuesday... Prisoner took her to the railway station through the back streets and told her to go to Mrs Lloyd's at Port Chalmers, giving her two shillings with which to pay her fare. On reaching port, she was told that Lloyd was in jail, and after calling at the houses of Mrs Jenkins, Mrs Campbell and Mrs Stackey, she was met by her father and taken home. Although the charge was proven, it was decided that it might fail in front of a jury. Powell was cautioned and discharged, at which the evening star fulminated. We do not remember a more disgraceful case than that of the abduction of the girl Mariah Williams, brought before the resident magistrate's court yesterday. There was not a redeeming feature in it. In fact, every action of the accused aggravated the offence with which she stood charged. A girl, only 13 years old, servant in a respectable family, was decoyed from her situation by a woman of disreputable character and induced to become an inmate of her house. One would have imagined that, having experienced the evils inseparable from her own degraded condition, the latter would at least have had so much of our common humanity left as to shrink from involving an innocent child in like infamy. Elizabeth Powell's activities were not limited to the abduction of servant girls. A mere two weeks from her appearance for abduction, she was again in court on a charge of vagrancy. The presiding magistrate was not kind in his stated opinion of the prisoner. Well, Elizabeth Powell, 
From the evidence before me, I have no doubt, and I do not think anyone who has heard the evidence can have any possible doubt, that you are one of the worst and most dangerous of vagrants, who, until you reform, should not be at large. You were charged a short time since, you may remember, with abduction, with inducing a little girl to enter your house for immoral purposes. You don't seem to be contented with little girls, but you ask women who are passing to come into tea, make them drunk, and we all know what occurs. Accused began to feign penitence and sobbed. Yes, you ask them into tea, and after making them drunk, men come in and prostitute them. That is what you do to your friends. You are a horrid, abominable character. For one so young, a dreadful character. Four years ago, apparently, you were convicted of larceny. What do you think your end will be? Such a woman as you should be locked up until you reform, to keep you from committing further mischief. I shall mark my sense of your conduct by sending you to the common jail for three months with hard labour. Lizzie Powell's last recorded court appearance was in 1879. Described by then as an old offender, she was charged with having no lawful means of support. Police Sergeant Guerin stated that she was following gentlemen about the streets and was in a state of nudity. She was accommodated at government expense for three months. And there my story of Elizabeth Powell ends, as far as the public record can divulge. It was easy back then to change towns, names and professions. Unless recognised by someone in authority, a new identity meant being treated as a first offender in a new town. This is Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. In the 1880s, Dunedin was still being put together, and some hills in the centre of the city had to be removed. The blasting of volcanic rock was necessary, but once it had disastrous consequences. This report from Gregor Campbell. The original heart of the town of Dunedin was in the area known as the Exchange. It had a limited amount of flat land, and between it and the much larger flat area to the northeast was Bell Hill. The first solution to the problem of Bell Hill was a deep cutting along the line of Princes Street known as the Cutting. Buildings and streets on both sides of the Cutting were, for some years, reached by steps. Eventually, the whole of Bell Hill between Princes Street and the harbour was removed to its present level. Dowling Street was also cut through from Princes Street and turning its corner to reach Rattray Street. Hard volcanic rock was found and blasting was necessary. It did not always go according to plan as reported by the Evening Star of May 18th, 1886. Frightful accident in the cutting. An alarming accident which was unhappily attended with fatal results took place last evening in the very centre of the city. It happened after a portion of our last edition was issued, but we were enabled to publish in the remainder of our town edition the following brief particulars of the sad affair. At 4.55pm today, when a blast was being fired in the Dowling Street cutting, from some cause a quantity of the rock was blown over the tops of the houses fronting Princess Street and, on falling, riddled several roofs. At the London Portrait Rooms, several pieces of the rock came through the roof, striking Mrs Julia Finch, sister-in-law of the proprietor, and killing her instantaneously. Mrs Louisa Irwin, 
wife of the proprietor of the London Portrait Rooms, was also struck and, it is feared, fatally injured. Charles Millier, a driver in the employ of Tilbury Brothers Expressman, was also struck, receiving serious injuries to legs, hands and arms. He was at once removed to Marshall's The Chemist, where he was attended to by Dr Wanless. The shot was fired by Jeremiah Rogers under the superintendence of Mr William Barnes, the corporation's inspector. Several other persons were more or less injured, but we could not ascertain their names or the extent of their injuries. The origin of the accident is to be found in the excavating works, which have for some time past been carried on in cutting a street from Princess Street to Rattray Street. The earlier portion of the work was not difficult, the ground being of such a nature that it could be easily worked, but the presence of a good deal of rock necessitated blasting at times. Many a blast has been fired off there without any untoward result, but on the present occasion the outcome was of a most disastrous and distressing nature. Great blame is attachable to someone. Of that there can be no doubt, but it would ill become us to attempt to sheet at home to any particular person, and we prefer to let the facts that will come out at the inquest speak for themselves. Further details were available in a later edition of the paper. The greatest damage was done, and the only fatal results ensued at the London portrait rooms of which Mr F.H. Irwin is proprietor. The gentleman's wife and a married sister, Mrs Finch, used some years ago to take an active part in the business, but of late, Mrs Finch alone was constantly engaged there. Mrs Irwin was, however, at the time of the accident, sitting in Mrs Finch's workroom, in company with Mrs and Miss Vivian, who had called on business. Suddenly, as Mrs Vivian states, a frightful noise was heard, and Mrs Finch was struck down with a piece of rock and never uttered a word. She sustained fearful injuries to the head and face and died in a few minutes. Mrs Irwin was not seen at once to be struck, but when people began to enter the room, she was inquiring confusedly as to what was the matter and why the crowd had assembled. But the unfortunate lady was immediately found to have fared little better than her sister. She was struck on the head and between the shoulders and has sustained a fracture of the skull and other injuries that make her recovery very doubtful. Miss Vivian, who sat at the table beside her mother, was also struck on the head and shoulder. Mrs Vivian marvellously escaped. Miss Vivian was taken to Dr Hawkins' house and thence home. The doctor describes her injuries as a large wound on the head exposing the skull, concussion of the left eyeball and severe contusions of the shoulder and wrist. The room in which Mrs Finch was killed faced Princess Street, and she was at the time of the accident sitting at her usual seat at a table near the window. Mrs Irwin was standing close by, while Miss Vivian was sitting in a chair near them. From the appearances, a large stone, weighing about half a hundredweight, struck the roof and thereon flew into fragments, all of which penetrated into the room with the lamentable results already detailed. A large hole is broken through the ceiling, and through this aperture can be seen the iron roof of the building with the orifice through which the stone fell. In the adjoining room, another piece of rock fell, but happily, no one was injured by it. Considering the fact that portions of the shower of stones fell into Princess Street, it is wonderful that there is not a larger list of casualties to record. Actually, the only bodily sufferer 
Beyond those already mentioned is a man named Charles Mellier who drives one of Tilbury Brothers' expresses. He happened to be driving by at the time, and a falling stone broke one of his thumbs, while another inflicted some nasty injuries on his arm and leg. Several very narrow escapes are related, but an expressman named Hasty had about the most providential escape from death. He was loading his express at Mr. Elliot's fruit shop when the blast went off and a big piece of rock actually knocked his hat off, then falling into the road and smashing the wheel of his vehicle. Mrs. Irwin, Mrs. Finch's sister, died a few days later. Compensation was made in the case of Mrs. Irwin, who left nine children, in the matter of £1,500. It was also sought by Mrs. Finch's husband, resident on the West Coast, but there was some comment made upon the timing of the claim, under the heading Local Gossip, in the New Zealand Herald. In the days of my youth, I remember often having impressed upon me by my old nurse and others that nothing should be thrown away as valueless until it has been carefully laid aside for at least seven years. I have even heard the period of storing extended to 14 years. Never mind how despised the object may be, how destitute of all value or utility it may appear in your eyes, if the teaching of this popular adage be followed, some value will, it is said, most assuredly be found attaching to the erstwhile object of your contempt. The truth of this sample of the wisdom of many and the wit of one has just been approved by Mr. E. T. Finch of Hokitika, who, at the end not merely of seven years, or even of fourteen years, but after the expiry of sixteen long years, finds that value attaches to what he had cast aside as worthless. Mr. Finch was once married, but he would have none of his wife. She was of no use to him, so he cast her aside, and for sixteen years she lived separate from him. But Mrs. Finch was killed by the Dowling Street blasting accident in Dunedin the other day, and straight away Mr. Finch finds a use for her. She being dead has a remarkable value, which he appraises at £1,000 and has, accordingly, claimed this sum from the Dunedin City Council. The claim was not responded to in a favourable matter by the so-named council. We like to hear back from listeners with any ideas they might have for stories. Here's one from Virginia Perry, whose great-grandfather James Stack trained as a Maori missionary and met the Waikawaiti whaler Johnny Jones in Dunedin in the 1860s. Bill Southworth reads from the Reverend Stack's journal. Amongst the striking personalities I was brought into contact with in New Zealand was Johnny Jones. I'd heard so much about this remarkable man that I was very desirous to see him. No one knew anything about his origin except that he came originally from Sydney in a whaling ship with his young wife and settled at Waikoiti near the Otago Heads about the year 1830, where he established a very successful whaling station. When the colony of Otago was established in 1848, he found a ready market for his stock and he grew rapidly very rich and was able to invest his money at a high rate of interest. The store he kept at Waikawaiti to supply the needs of his whaling hands developed into a general merchant's business and Johnny Jones moved with his family to Dunedin where he built a large house for himself and afterwards large houses for his married sons and daughters. Nothing could be done in the way of business without his advice and concurrence. 
On one occasion, when the local legislature was considering a bill which he disapproved of, he sat in the gallery and watched the proceedings from day to day, hoping to overawe the legislature. But when his wishes were disregarded and the bill was passed, he rose up in great wrath and called out, I'll make you repent of this. I'll send your bills in tomorrow and make you pay them too. During a visit to Dunedin, I saw Mr. Jones walking down the street before me, with his hands behind his back under his coattails. On mentioning this to a resident friend, he said, Ah, he was in a good temper this morning. It is a propitious time to approach Johnny Jones when his hands are underneath his coattails. But woe betide the unlucky person who dares to speak to him when his hands are thrust into his pockets, for that betokens rage and fury. The following Sunday I got to church early, just after the bell commenced, and passing down the aisle I spotted a pew and sat down, not noticing the name on the card. Almost five minutes before the service began, a short but handsome old gentleman in a black frock coat and short curly white hair and shaven face stood at the entrance of the pew I was in and looked me through and through with a pair of piercing black eyes, but with a kindly expression on his face. He was followed by several ladies who entered the pew when he moved to a spare seat a little further down the aisle. On mentioning what had happened to my friend Archdeacon E. after church, he said, Oh, the old man is very much softened of late since the death under painful circumstances of a favourite daughter a short time back. Your clerical garb and the fact that you are a stranger would not have protected you from an outburst of indignation for your intrusion upon his pew. A few days after this, I accompanied Bishop Harper to the consecration of the church at Waikoaiti, erected by Mr. Jones in the township he had laid out there. From the church door, the fine large houses, which he had erected for his sons, could be seen. Each house stood in the middle of a fine farm, with many hundreds of acres in extent and well stocked, and with a high state of cultivation. After the service, the congregation adjourned to an adjoining building, where a good and substantial lunch was served. The old gentleman presided at one table and his eldest son at the other. The bishop sat at the father's table and I at the son's. When most of the people were served, the old man, who was carving a splendid ham, called out quite loudly to his son, John, will you have some ham? The son made no reply. I attached a special significance to the incident. When the speeches were over and the gathering dispersed, I saw the bishop in conversation with young Mr. Jones, and soon afterwards they joined the father, and I saw the father and son shaking hands. The bishop told me afterwards the meaning of it all. The son had of late years developed an unhealthy craving for spirits, and the father, wishing to check it, made him promise to abstain from drinking, hoping to break him of the habit. The son, about two years before the opening of the church, was reported to his father as again in the habit of taking too much. The father went down to the farm and charged the son with having broken his word. Well, what have I had, said the son. I'm no longer a child and I'm not going to stand dictation from you or any other man. Very well, John. I'm not going to allow a son of mine to disgrace himself by breaking his word. If you think that I'm not strong enough to enforce my will upon you now you're a man, you can try if you like. If you can lick me, I'll say no more to you about anything you do in future. The son accepted the challenge and the two retired to the cow yard, where they were least likely to be seen or disturbed, 
and there, for two hours, they fought with their fists till the younger man, overcome by the father's endurance, gave in. Though they had often met after that, they had never spoken to one another, till the luncheon on the occasion of the opening of the church, when the old father publicly held out the olive branch by asking, John, will you have some ham? Fortunately, the bishop was able to induce the son to submit to the father, and the father to overlook the son's discourtesy at the luncheon. And the two were very good friends after that. The Reverend Stack's journal was read by Bill Southworth. This program, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare. Supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Program. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.